three weeks, I've been talking about an enemy who, uh, a defeated enemy, a weaponless enemy. I've been talking about his schemes, his powers that he has, and his ability to interfere with his demons. Talking about the distractions that he brings and the timing of those distractions are almost pen perfect when you're about to do something for God. Or you've come off a huge accomplishment for God, or you're about to do something. It's amazing the distractions that come. And so we can stand against them in the power of the Lord. And so we've been talking a lot about the enemy. So I've been informing you that he has a pretty complex plan. And so we should be good students. We should be taking notes and we should be looking at our journals and saying, this is when I fell and this is how God gave me victory. And so I'm the kind of person that jots those things down. I'd say, oh, I remember last time I was here, I was tempted with this. And, and so it's, it's this constant learning. I, I watch the enemy. I, 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 I learn from his tactics so that I can be a better soldier in this real war that we're in. I don't like to wake up each day and, and, and not have an idea of what he's done before because he has tendencies. And so we've been talking a lot about his complex plans and his schemes and how his primary purpose is to kill, steal, and destroy. Yet when I look at our Savior, I look at the balance of power that he has and, and how it's unlimited and how it's, it never runs out, I think about his plan, his plan for us. It's pretty simple. Trust me. If you trust me, you win. I mean, when you think about his plan, it's not like it's wrapped in all this deceit and you got to peel back all these layers to get, but what does God desire? What does God want? How can we walk in victory? It's not like this big to-do list that God has. It's not like you need to study him for hours. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's all-powerful. And so when we truly break all that down, it comes back to, do you trust me? And so for me, when I think about this, talking about our God today, here's what I know. When we trust God and we walk in the fullness of his power, we win. No ifs, and, or buts. We win. So if we walk in the obedience that Christ has laid before us, and we trust our Savior, we, we, we turn away from sin, we win. We win convincingly. Now John 10.10 10 says it this way. Now just think again. Don't turn there, but just listen. The thief comes, by the way, he's called the thief. John calls him the thief. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So just picture that. That's the choice. You have, you have this enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his primary MO. That's his mission. That's what he wants to do. So any moment that we turn our head and engage a thought that he has, it's on the path to killing, stealing, and destroying. Seems like a good plan to follow, doesn't it? Now on the other side, Jesus said through John 10.10, in John 10.10, he said this, I have come so that you have life, and many translations say full life or abundant life. Now, just pull away from whatever you're in right now. You have two choices in this world. Full life, abundant life, or still kill and destroy. Now, when you really think about it, what's our problem with that? Seriously, what's our problem? Any temptation that comes to the enemy that causes us to walk away from God, we've chosen death and destruction. What? right-minded person in their, in their clearest moment would ever want steal, kill, and destroy as opposed to life and abundant life. Listen to me, church. This isn't rocket science. This is just Jesus saying, trust me, follow me. And when you do, life, abundant life, full life. And when you don't, death, destruction. It's not that difficult. And so we have choices. And so anytime 
that you're not walking with Jesus and walking in life and and you're relying upon him, guess what you're doing? You've taken your life down this path that's going to lead where the thief will take you to steal, kill, and destroy. There aren't any other choices. That's it. That's your only choices. You don't have like, well, I'm going to go 1.3 choice or, or, or minus 0.3. Anytime you get on the minus side, death, uh, destruction. So, church, listen to me. We got to rely on God. We got to believe his promises. And he has an incredible plan for us. So in the midst of struggle, when we don't know what to do, when it seems like all hell has broken loose on earth, we don't turn to the thief and say, what do you think I should do? Well, I think you should do this. Death, destruction. That sounds like a great plan. We need to turn to our Savior and say, even though it's difficult, even though I don't know how this is going to work out, even though I don't have everything clear, I'm going to trust you. And when I trust Jesus, guess what? We win and we have a life and we have abundant life. Anybody want some of this? That's what Christ can do for us. So any moment that you choose just a tiny step this way, just know this, you've you've taken the advice of the thief and you're going to end up stealing. He's going to steal, kill, and destroy your life. I don't understand why we would want not to have life and to have full life. But that whole battle rages all the time, all the time. It's raged ever since Satan was thrown out of heaven. It has been raging, but every single time that Satan thought he won, and when he thinks he wins in your life, and you finally, finally realize, hey, man, I've sinned. I'm going to confess, God, this is what I did. I am sorry. God, forgive me. I'm going to go in a different direction. You get back on the balance over here with God, and you find life, and you find full life. This battle has been going on for a very, very, very long time. But hear me out. There will come an end to this battle. There will come a day when you and I will witness it with your very eyes if you're redeemed, born again, have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You will be there when it's all over, where the enemy is completely defeated. Anybody want to see that day where he is defeated? Grab your Bibles. I'm going to take you on a journey and show you how the enemy— turn to Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38. I'm going to show you how the enemy has been trying from his early beginning— to disrupt the plan of God, but how every single time God has come through. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Ushers will put one in your hand. Turn to Job chapter 38. He has been battling for us from the beginning. God has been battling for us from the very, very, very beginning. And every time the enemy thinks he's won, God says, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Look at Job chapter 38. Let's go back and see where this battle began. Let's read verses 4 to 7. Stand with me. We'll read it together. Job 38, verses 4 through 7. Read this with me out loud, please. Ready? Read. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. You have a seat. The Lord is speaking here to Job. And so he's asking him, were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Were you there when when I put it into place? Were you there when I laid the parameters and I said this was going to happen? He was saying, you weren't there, but the angels were there. 
Look at verse 7, chapter 38 and verse 7. It says, while the morning star sang together and all the what? Angels shouted for joy. So there's this moment in time. There's this moment in time way before we were born that the angels were created. And so we know that they're created beings. We know they're created before the earth was formed because the foundations were being laid out and the angels were there. All the angels were there. And it says that they were shouting for joy. So picture this for a second. Let me give you just a a quick timeline as we understand it. In the beginning, way before, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit never had an actual start point. They've always been around. So in our minds, think about it. They've always been. So they existed far before angels, far before anything else. They've always been there, Scripture says. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have been infinite in their time. No beginning, no end. So there was a time when they were just existed. Then we realized there was a time because Scripture says when God laid out the foundations of the earth, angels were there. So angels were created beings. So they were there and they were looking at this earth that was yet to be formed. So they were there before the earth was formed. Next, we know, the next thing that comes along, God creates the heavens and the earth. It shows us in Genesis 1 that he created it. And the angels had already been there. And God, Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, the three one had been around forever. Then we know this, that at that point, the angels were celebrating the layout. They were looking at the blueprints of the earth yet to be formed, and they were all in tune, and they were shouting for joy. So picture if you can. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, high-fiving each other. Angels breaking down into a praise course. This is, there's this unbelievable moment in heaven, and everything is good. In fact, think about this. Jesus even said this, in, in, in New Testament, and God himself said this in Genesis 1.31. After the sixth day, God created everything, and he said it was very good. So you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Angels are created. The angels were there when they're laying out the foundations of the earth. And so next, he creates Adam and Eve. He creates the earth. And after the sixth day, God says this. He says, it is very good. So we know from that point on, angels, man, Adam and Eve, animals, earth, Everything is good. There is no sin. We know it because God said it is very good. It can't be very good if there's sin. At that point, at some point after that sixth day, Satan himself was tossed from heaven. Now think about this for a second. In Isaiah 14, 12, it says it this way. Just listen. It says, Satan rebelled and was cast out of heaven. And it says this. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nation. So there's this point in time, after the sixth day, after it was very good, that Scripture tells us that Satan, the morning star, Lucifer, was tossed from heaven. Jesus even gives reference to when he was talking in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 18, he says, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. And in the book of Revelation, Satan is seen as the star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. Revelation chapter 9 and verse 1. So we know after the sixth day, at some point, Satan was tossed from heaven. He was thrown out of heaven because there was sin in him. We also know that in Hebrews chapter 12 that there's a numeral amount of angels. And we know from Revelation chapter 12 and verses 3 to 9 that Satan was thrown with one-third 
of the stars of the angels. So let's back it up. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Always been here. Angels are created. They see the foundation of the earth being laid out. They're singing praise songs. God speaks, brings the earth into existence. Adam and Eve are born. He says, it's very good after the sixth day. At some point after the sixth day, Satan sends. He comes down to earth and he enters the garden. He's bent on wreaking sin and havoc upon mankind. Let me show you where that's found. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. Turn over about five, six, seven, eight books to Ezekiel chapter 28. This is the Bible's reference to this time. Look at Ezekiel chapter 28, and let's look at verses 13 to 19. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 13 to 19. Follow along as I read. It says, you were in Eden, the garden of whom? Every precious stone adorned you. Ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian, what? Cherub. So I ordained you, verse 14. You were on the holy mount of God, heaven. You walked among the fiery stones. You were what? Blameless in your ways from the day you were created. See, it says that he was created. Till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence. And you what? So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. I threw you from heaven. Verse 17. Your heart became what? On account of your beauty. And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the what? I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out of, from you, and it consumed you. And I reduced you to ashes on the ground in sight of all who were watching. All the nations who knew you were appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. Ezekiel gives us reference to his beginning, his fall, and his end. The anointed cherub is filled with pride. He wants to be like God. He says, look at me. Look how beautiful I am. Look how powerful I am. And so pride leads to destruction. I find it very interesting. Scripture shows that in James. It shows in Romans. It shows in the Old Testament and Proverbs that pride leads to destruction. I also find it interesting that his path of destruction began with pride. And his goal right now is to steal, kill, and destroy destruction. The very thing that caused his fall is the very thing that he wants you to fall with also. That's his path that he wants to do. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And so Satan is tossed from heaven. Meanwhile, sixth day, sometime after the sixth day when everything was very good, Adam and Eve are just kind of minding their business. They're walking through the garden. They're enjoying the luscious flowers. They're enjoying the fruit. They're, they're enjoying a place of, of no sin. And Adam's enjoying this perfect woman. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a beautiful time. It's just no sin. Just, and, and, and then out of nowhere, Satan tries to derail this plan. He's tossed from heaven and he enters the garden of Eden. One thing you must consider here, though, in light of all that's about to take place, Satan really thinks he's going to win here. But God never, listen to me, never, 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 never loses 
to Satan. Never. There's never a moment where God loses to Satan. It's impossible. So what happens? We know what happens. Genesis chapter 3, we looked at last week. The, the, the snake who starts speaking to Eve comes to Eve. And so they're in the garden. Meanwhile, they're walking around. They're enjoying a perfect place. And this tempter comes, the snake comes, and they, he starts to plant these seeds of doubt. Did God really say that? Do you think, he would, you think God loves you? And if he wouldn't allow you to eat from that tree? And so God told him, you can have anything at all, but you can't eat from the tree of life. And so he starts asking, do you really trust me? Why don't you eat from that tree of life? If you eat from that tree, you'll be just like God. So the nightmare began. Eve and Adam fall together. And all of a sudden, everything changes in the garden. There's panic. In fact, the animals notice it. Adam and Eve, they didn't know what was happening to themselves. All they knew is that bliss and peace and sinless community was gone. It's not like they could open up their Bibles and go to 1 John 1, 9. This is what we're supposed to do now. Eve, we're supposed to do now. Confess your sins right now. If we confess sin, he's faithful and just forgive us. They didn't have a manual. They didn't have the written Bible. It's like they didn't even know what was happening to them. All they knew is they felt shame and guilt. And so their response was what often ours is, is to hide. And Scripture says they hid. And they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. And have you ever wondered why? Because all of a sudden, they were feeling these emotions. And all of a sudden, this sin had entered their hearts that had never been there. And they couldn't go, hey, what did you do when you sinned? How did you handle it? What does God want? All they knew is that they felt separated from God. And so feeling separated, they felt shame. And their best inclination was to turn and run and hide. And God comes to them and says, Adam, where is the man? Where are you at? You know where he was at? He was hiding. Because they were reeling in their sin and they were reeling in this guilt and shame that had consumed them because they had taken this temptation and they had taken the bite of it and they had sinned before God. It seems like this is a very, very, very horrible time in the garden. It is. But it also seems like that's it. Mankind is done. I mean, that was God's plan. And all of a sudden, Satan derailed it. And so in Satan's mind, he's thinking, I've won. Well, he didn't win. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Let me show you what happens next. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21. Turn to Genesis chapter 3 and look at verse 21. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21. Look what happens next to Adam and Eve. Verse 21 says this. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and what. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of what? And eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And so he would work the ground. We know that. And there would be... There would be weeds and bull thistles. Thanks a lot, Adam. And after he drove the man out, and dandelions, and he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So they sin. And if we stopped right there and we said chapter 3, Satan thought he had God right where he wanted him. Two sinners leaving the garden, banished from the garden, an angel standing there guarding the entrance so that they couldn't get back in. Satan's like, nah, 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 hey, 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 
goodbye. But that's not the case. God was in complete control in that moment. Complete control in that moment. How do you say? How is that possible? They're leaving and Satan appears to win. Let me tell you what happened here that, that, that's just amazing. It's the first act of grace outside of, of God giving us life. Is he banished him from the garden. He wouldn't let him. You know why he banished him from the garden? Because in this garden was the tree of life. And if anyone would turn back and eat from that tree of life in the condition they were in, it would be locked into it forever. And so God didn't allow them. He said, no, I'm going to put an angel at the entrance with a sword. In other words, you're not coming back in. And the reason he didn't want them to come back in is because if they would have went to the tree of life, taken a bite in that sin-filled condition, they would have been locked in that eternal state of sin forever, never to be redeemed. And listen to me, never, ever, ever to have an opportunity to know Jesus Christ, the future Messiah, as we know him today, because they would have been locked in sin and doomed for hell. And so God says, I need to push you out of here so you don't don't go to the tree of life and lock yourself in the state of sin forever and ever and ever. It was an act of grace that God removed him from the garden. Satan, meanwhile, thinks it's an act of victory for him. Look what happens to that tree of life. Turn to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. This tree of life appears again, and it appears again in the new city. The heaven that you and I will one day experience and go to. Look at Revelation chapter 22. Look at verses 1 to 3. No more reference to the tree of life from Genesis. And all of a sudden it appears in Revelation and John talks about it. Look what it says in verse 22, or chapter 22 and verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God and the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the what? Tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. Now let me tell you why this is important. The tree of life reappears in heaven one day. That's when we have our resurrected bodies, our redeemed body. That's when there is no sin. That's when everything has, Satan has been cast down into the fiery pit. That's when it's for those who had a relationship with Jesus Christ and the, 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 the righteous angels, the ministering spirits and God. We are in heaven and when we walk through heaven, there is the tree of life down this road on both sides. And you know what happens? We are able to go to that tree of life and eat from that fruit. And guess what happens? It locks us in that eternal state of perfectness forever and ever and ever and ever. God uses the very tree that he told them not to eat from, reappears in Revelation when we have a perfected body because of Christ. We stand and now we can be locked into the eternal state forever and ever. What Satan thought was defeat, God says, I'll show you what I'm going to do with that tree. I'm going to turn it into something good, and I'm going to allow my people who are known by my name, who call me Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior, to one day take a bite of this fruit, and they're going to be locked into this perfect righteous state forever. Man, that is awesome news. That's the picture. Satan thinks he's won. God says, no, I have another plan. You see, Satan thought he had won for good here when Adam and Eve were tossed in the garden, but there's the battle. Nope. God wins again. His future plan, he turns all things into good to those that love him. There's an example of it. Not death, not destruction, but a life full, abundant life full. And what seemed like a convincing victory for the enemy in the garden was a setup for God 
to, for him to bring a convincing victory for us. Often, our setbacks are set up for God to win. They just are. I also want to say this in this journey. That's, that's been contested from the beginning, and it's contested even now for us. There's daily battles that we face, the ones that we need to stand up and find victory in. God's power trumps all other powers. That's what we always got to know. Now, when you get this, everything changes in your life. God's power trumps all other powers. It's not like God's power is like, like he runs out. It's like, boy, I used a lot on Jim on Monday. Jim, you're only going to get like 20, you got 20% left on Thursday. And it's not like he, he, he's unlimited. His power never, the battery meter never runs dry. You never have to re, or charge him, recharge him. His power is limitless. You see, sometimes we think Satan's power is as much as God's power. You ever like to scale power? I hear people talking about Satan. He's strong. It's like, we feel like, okay, Satan on this side of the scale, God on this side of the scale. It's like, you put them both. They're both very powerful. He just has a lot of power for evil. He's got a lot of power for good. And so we think when we walk to these scales and we drop God's power and Satan's power, it goes, poof. Listen, when we walk to the scales and we put Satan's power and we put God's power and it goes, poof. His power is limitless. It's not like there's this tug of war between evil and good. Satan's pulling and there's this, there's this tug of war and God's, God's out there and Satan's here and then Satan pulls hard and he's like, oh man, come on God, come on God, come on God. You know what God does? He walks up to that tug of war and he says, his power is so much more than what's, quit giving the enemy too much power. Let me just say it this way. Here's the best way I could say it, and I think this is a really good way. In fact, if you don't remember anything else about this message, this might be something good to remember. Way too many Christians have a devil who is too big and a God is too small. We do. Way too many Christians have a devil who's too big and a God who's too small. It's just the opposite. Remember, God created Satan. And no created being will ever have more power than the creator of that being. We saw that in Ephesians a couple weeks ago. That we're seated far above with Christ and Satan and all the authorities of evil set below him. God spoke on the moon and the earth and mankind was created. When we begin to realize that we have power in Christ, that it can overcome any of the power of the enemy... It's not that Satan has power. It's that we give him too much power. Think about some of the ways Scripture talks about that in our daily lives. Uh, just, just, if you could just take these verses in and just kind of let, let them just run through your heart and your mind and just kind of stick to you. John 16, says, He has overcome the world. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Luke 18, 27 says this. Let this just wash over you. What is impossible with men is possible with God. Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Joshua 1, 9. Be bold and courageous. Do not be afraid. Listen to me. We battle against a defeated enemy who tries to give us impression with smoke and mirrors that he's more powerful than he really is. He's not. The scales are tipped in the favor of God. All that to say this. We serve a mighty, all-powerful God. And by the way, 
He has zero concerns for Satan. It's not like he wakes up and says, because our, our Bible says he never slumbers nor sleeps. Not like today, he looked and thought, wow, that's a pretty good one, Satan. What am I, what am I going to do with that one? That's a pretty good one. It's not like he's, he's like, like, wow, I don't know if I could have something to cover that. God is never, ever, ever, ever concerned with the power that Satan has because he knows he's all-powerful. I love what Psalm 84 says. In the King James, it says that our God is the God of the host, host of angels. The NIV says our God is God Almighty. Eugene Peterson, in his, in his message paraphrase, says this, our God is the God of the angel armies. Don't you like that analogy? He's the God of the angel armies. It's like, these are mine. And listen, I know some stories about angels. We saw a couple weeks back where the angel, one angel slew 184,000 Assyrians with one swipe of his sword. That's the God that you and I serve. And so when anything comes your way, just call out for that angel who slew 184,000. Our God is the God of the angel armies. God gives us reminders through Scripture. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. At his disposal at any moment are angels ready to send rescue missions to our lives. When we begin to believe this, you live differently. We have, what has happened, most of us have lost our fear of God and his holiness and his power. James tells us there's this sense where the demons shudder when they think about God. When's the last time that you just thought about the name of God and you thought about his holiness and you were in his presence that you were struck with this awe and you had to get down on your knees and just be buried into the ground because of the power and presence of God? He is a right God. He is a righteous and holy God. And scripture shows us that. It says we've lost our fear. He's our buddy. He's our friend. No, he's our God. He created us. And at his resources and his fingertips are incredible resources to provide and care for us. You see, I have a picture looking of our God when I think I'm walking through something difficult. I have a picture of him saying, Jim, I got this one. Hey, angel. And he sends help. It's not like he's, oh, I don't know what to do. <laughs> he knows what to do, but we got to access him for that. I think one of the greatest examples in Scripture of just a human being understanding and knowing who their God was is found in 1 Samuel. Turn there, 1 Samuel chapter 17. I think it's one of my favorite, but I think the reason I love it is because this young man knew who his God was. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 17. I want to give you an example of someone who understands the power of God. Because there's no other way to think through this other than he knew that his God was bigger. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's a popular account, but I want to give you some new light in this. 1 Samuel 17 and verse 22, David and Goliath. Look at verse 22. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath the Philistine, champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all what? Ran from him in what? Isn't that what we do sometimes? Now, picture this. Every day, this mammoth, Goliath, nine foot, you've seen, you've seen Hollywood do it, and you've seen Sunday school people try to... Sunday classes do it. You've seen it on flannel graph. Big man walked out each day shouting blasphemous things against the God that we serve. 
And so day after day, the Israelites would look out and he would come out and they would see him. And so they would see him and they would run in fear. You know the reason they ran in fear? It's because they were looking at the problem and the obstacle and the enemy instead of looking at their God. You see, the minute we put God between us and whatever that is, that enemy, we see God and we can't see the enemy. And we say, God, this one's yours. Take it. And so what happened day after day, they'd run out and they see the enemy. Instead of looking at their God, they looked at the enemy. Instead of putting God between them, them and their enemy. And the moment we put God between us and the enemy, we don't see the enemy. We see God and we say, I can sleep tonight. Look what David does though. Look what David does here. Verse 25, now the Israelites have been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but if I could live tax-free, I'm checking this out. I mean, think about just that alone. I mean, it's like no one stepped up to take advantage of that. And not only that, I often wonder, this is just the human side, sometimes we spiritualize uh, Bible characters way too much. I've often wondered if David checked out the king's daughter first, see, see if this was a worthy journey or not. Oh, I'm going for this. He's a human being, by the way. Anyhow, move on. Verse 26, David asked the man standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy the armies of the living God. David is ticked. It's the first time you see someone really ticked about what's happening. And he's just a young boy. Verse 27, they repeated to him what they had been saying and told him. This is what will be done for the man who kills him. Live tax-free, get the king's daughter. When Eliab, David's older brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Hey, little brother, what are you doing here? Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? In other words, you can't even take care of the couple sheep that you're supposed to be taking care of. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Right away, the bigger brother, little brother syndrome that often plays out. Big brother beats up the little brother and the little brother's supposed to run away. But David's not running away. Look what happens next. Verse 29. Now, what have I done, said David? Can I even speak? He then turned away to someone else. He didn't let that stop him. He didn't let big brother's bulliness stop him. He turned to someone else. Maybe someone else. Will you listen to me? Who is this guy who's defying our God? Listen, let's do something about. Will anybody listen to me? He didn't give up. And then it says this. Why have you come down here? He says, I cannot even speak. He then turned away to someone else and, and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. He'll give tax-free life. And you'll get a daughter or the king's daughter, verse 31. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. Now, just pause for a second. You're Saul. You're sitting in the palace. You got these servants fanning you, and you're drinking your iced tea, probably Arnie Palmer. I mean, there you are. And you get a report. He knows that Goliath's been out there, but he's sitting there in his palace. And so the secretary buzzes the king's palace and says, hey, someone wants to see you. Someone wants to come in there, and they said they want to take out this, this giant. Oh, that sounds good. We'll bring him back. 
So picture, I mean, just in your mind, picture the king in his mind what he's going to see. And back the hallway comes 13-year-old Isaiah Brown dressed in his Superman pajamas. <laughs> Seriously, think about this. I mean, you got to, you got to, you just, you, you just know that Saul put a filter on right away. <laughs> this is what I'm thinking, but I'm not going to say it. He wanted to say, little boy, where's your big brother? What are you doing? But he didn't. He wanted to say, that's it, but he didn't. He wanted to say, servant, what are you doing? Don't let the little kids in the house. But he didn't. Look what he said. Look what happens next. Verse 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Come on, church. He's just a teenager. I mean, when I say teenager, young teenager who knew who his God was. I mean, just picture, you know, you get those pajamas. He probably had a little cape on the back. My God's big. I can do this, not with my power, but with my God's power. Don't you love a fire and passion and faith of young children? I love when I see it in teenagers. Just love it. Saul replied, um, he probably wanted to say, filter, filter, filter. But he says, you're not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy. And it has been a fighting man. And he's been a fighting man from his youth. <laughs> I just picture David standing up trying to make himself taller. Listen to me. Then he says this, but David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, um, I, uh, I grabbed it by its hair and stuck it and I killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. Now, all of a sudden this conversation took on a new turn. When's the last time you killed a lion and a bear? So Saul's hearing him, and he says, then he says, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. I'm sure Saul wants to say, hey, did you do that on the video game or did you do that in life? The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. All of a sudden, Saul saw through and he saw the heart of, of this young man of God. He saw the heart of this soldier. He saw the heart of this teenager who wanted to change the world and not leave things like they were. He saw this eighth grader in his junior high school saying, not on my watch will we allow the degrading of our Lord in this school. He saw the heart of a young teenager to said, I, with the power of God, will do something about this, not on my watch. You see, it has nothing to do with age. It has nothing to do with size. It has everything to do with heart. And if you believe in God, that is possible. And David believed it. And Saul saw it. Saul, Saul. <laughs> Verse 38. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic, He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on the sword over the tunic and tried walking around. He was not used to them. And he says this, I cannot go in these. Now, have you ever seen, I mean, come on, you know know what's happening. Stuff is just big. Have you ever had your son, uh, dad's younger son when he's small, put on your boots and walk around the house? 
It's just precious. And you ever see your four or five-year-old grab a hold of your size 11 boots and walk around? It's kind of, I mean, David, he's got all this stuff on him. I mean, just picture him. He took his cape off and ripped the Superman off, and he's standing there. He's, he's got Saul's, all his armor on. I mean, his, he probably put the, the helmet on, his head's probably like this. And, and so here's what happened. Saul was still thinking that the armor would protect him. He thought it was the physical that would defeat the spiritual. He thought that somehow he protected him enough that he might have a chance. But David says, I don't need this. I go in the power of the Lord, and I stand in his mighty power, and I will win with his power. That's what David went in. He didn't go in his, his garb. He didn't go in because he knew his stones were big enough. He went in the power of the Lord. He resisted, and you know what happened? The enemy was defeated. And it begins right here, church. It has nothing to do with how old It has nothing to do with how big. It has nothing to do with what's on you. It has everything to do with what's inside of you. Listen, church, there are so many victories that we have left on the playing field because we believe we needed something more in the physical, and we don't. When you stand in the power and authority of Jesus Christ, all your enemies fall. Walk in that power, church. And when you do... When you see the enemy, you don't see him. You see the God who's between you and the enemy, and you are just mesmerized by this awesome God, and you know that it is safe to go into the enemy's camp because God is going before you, standing behind you, and fighting through you. That's what a Christ follower, when the, that's what happens when a Christ follower walks in the power of Jesus Christ. We need a few more Davids in our world. In other words, it has nothing to do with how we perceive we can accomplish in our own minds and own ability. It has everything to do with what Christ can do through us. So David went out. He grabbed the sling. I mean, just picture this. I mean, can you, even his own people were mocking him. His brother's probably saying there, it's been good knowing you, big boy. Yeah. And all the other Israelites are running for fear. And this one guy, this one young teenager, this junior high champion said, not on my watch. My God can work through me. The same power that was exerted through a teenager is still available today. The only thing that's keeping it from us is, and experiencing it is us believing that we can walk in his power. What is your Goliath? What lies before you? What are you believing from the enemy? You're not strong enough. That could never happen. No one's ever done that. You get too much junk in your life. Blah, 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 blah. Stand in the power of Jesus Christ. Put your eyes on the perfecter of our faith. Focus on him and don't get entangled by the sin along the way and the distractions and walk in his power. And I'll guarantee you victory is on the horizon. The problem is this, church. Many of you have a devil who is too big and a God who is too small. It's time we flipped the scales. One small stone, powered by God, thrown by a faith-filled junior high boy, dropped the bully. Meanwhile, everyone else ran. But God got the victory. God wants some more victories. By the way, he has his final say. 
This encounter began in the beginning. There's encounters along the way like we have that David has and you have. And then the Bible records there's a finish to the enemy. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. He has his final say. God will have his final say. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. Look at Revelation 19. He'll have his final say. Look at verse 11. John says this, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, verse 11 of chapter 19, whose rider is called Faithful and what? With justice he judges and makes what? Not a peace rally, a war. His eyes are like blazing what? And on his head are how many crowns? He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in what? And and his name is the what? The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp what? Which, which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of what? Listen to me, church. This isn't flannel graph, Jesus. This isn't Christmas pageant, Jesus. This isn't away in a manger, Jesus. But this is a Savior whose robe is dipped in blood. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. He's angry. He's got us coming behind on some horses. It makes me want to go out and learn how to ride a horse better because I want to be right out front. And we are going to be charging the gates of the enemy in hell with Jesus out in front. And it says that he takes the sword and wipes them out. The closest I can get is hopping on my Harley, my iron horse, and learning how to do it. Listen, church, this is a great point in history. Satan knows this. In God's mind, it is history. Past, present, and future. It's already done. By the way, it's not a picture of a defeated bride, not a persecuted bride, not a defenseless group, but a redeemed group of people ready to get some honking revenge. You want some? You want some of this? I want to be on the front lines, and I know this. Christ always honors obedience. There's a huge part of me. I just want to live obedient life, God, because I want a front row seat to this. I want to have the biggest honking horse, and I want to see you put an end to all the destruction that the enemy has done on marriages and churches and people and the world and abortions and uh, uh, kids that need rescued and are abused. I want the front row seats to that. Don't you? That's it. That's it. There will come a day, church, when God gets ultimate revenge. This dark, nasty enemy of ours, his end will happen. And you will be there to witness it if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Look what happens. Chapter 19 and verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in, in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in the middle. In other words, he say, hey, birds, Woo, come here. Listen to me. Birds, we got some supper for you. Look what he says. Come, gather together for the great supper of what? It's called the supper of God. You've got to love this name. Verse 18. So that you may eat the flesh of kings, 
generals and mighty men of horses and their riders. And the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great, all the enemy. Then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army, the bride coming behind, along with many angels. But the beast was captured with him. The false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf, with these signs he had deluded those who had deceived the mark of the beast, received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Praise God. The rest of them were killed with the sword. Praise God. And they came out of the mouth of the rider of the horse. And the rider of the horse is Jesus Christ. It's a violent act. He's coming back and he's going to put an end to it. That's what's happening here. Then it says this. And all the birds gorge themselves on their flesh. And John calls it the supper of God. And then it tells us this. In Revelation, John tells us in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1. He says, then I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. (laughs) Yeah, I love this. He, He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the what? Or who? Or thief, or whatever you want to call him. And bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So here's the picture. The millennial kingdom comes. Rapture occurs. Thousand years of millennial reign. Satan is captured. They bind him up. They put a chain around him, throw him into the abyss, a place where there's hordes of demons. And for a thousand years, he's he's chained up. And he's in prison, and he gets anger and anger and anger and anger. And he continues to think, let me out of here, and I'm going to put an end to God. Let me out of here. And so after the thousand years, he's released. And look what happens in verse 7 of chapter 20. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And number they are like the sand on the seashore. They march across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and what? Devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be, the devil will be tormented day and night for how long? How long? How long? How long? Ever. And he knows it. Listen, church, he's a defeated enemy. We got to live as though we have a defeated enemy with a victorious God. And the scales have been tipped. And when the obstacle's in front of you, look at your God and not at your enemy and stand in the power of the Lord and be victorious now and forever. That's what that means. I'm tired, God. Help us today. But God, this is such good news. I pray, Jesus that we would walk in that power. God, I pray that we would walk in the power and authority of Jesus Christ and we wouldn't live as a defeated bride. And Jesus, that we would, we would walk victoriously. Oh God, this is great stuff. I pray that it will stick to us. I pray that we wouldn't have a devil who's too big and a God who's too small. And I pray, God, that we would see you as the God of the angel armies ready to rumble. We love you, God. 
And we stand in the strong name of Jesus Christ, and we stand victorious. In Jesus' name, amen.